this text that are just reminding us about some of those things that we may have forgotten about that are significant in our walk and our understanding with the Lord. Today we are looking again at Romans, and we're going to be in chapter 6. And as we've gotten to chapter 6, we've obviously worked through several different things, but today we will be answering the question, how can I stop sinning? How can I stop sinning? Now, if any of us has been Christians or believers for any amount of time, by now we have probably asked ourselves this question. There may have been at different times in our lives some pervasive sin that we really wrestled and struggled with, and we questioned, Lord, how can I stop sinning? How can I stop this particular sin? And so we want to be able to answer that question today. Now, before I got started working on this week's sermon, I did a little research and I googled, you know, what are some of the main ways that people suggest that you should break habits? And just googling that title alone, Breaking Bad Habits, solicited 270,000 results within a matter of seconds. There were literally thousands of books written on all the most effective ways that a person can break a habit. And of course, me with my pessimistic self thought if any of these books actually worked, there wouldn't be this many books about the topic. But the question is, is how do you break a bad habit? And two of the most common themes that I saw in all of these books was that it needed willpower. It needed a rewiring of the brain. And it said, if you could will yourself to do that in 90 days, you could break a bad habit. I think maybe some of us could identify with that. All of us over time develop both good and bad habits. Some of them are simple, like nail biting, and some of them are a little bit more dangerous and detrimental to our health, something like smoking. But all of the material I, say, I read said that you could break this habit within a matter of three months. And as I read this, it made me think about our daughter, Sarah Brooke. Sarah Brooke has the absolute worst finger-sucking habit I have ever seen in my life. And I mean, it is to the point that I have put polishes, I have put creams, everything that tastes terrible, and she literally is willing herself beyond the bad taste to suck her fingers. And so I realized that if all those books were right, it takes a little bit something else than just willpower. Chris and I were having a conversation the other week because I was just thinking about it because I cannot stand the habit and it frustrates me. And I said, you know what? I realized something. Because when Sarah Brooke was still nursing, we found out we were having Benjamin. And so Sarah Brooke was only five months old. And that meant that the time that she would have spent having that intimate breastfeeding nursing time with her mother, she actually had to be taken away from that sooner than all of our other kids which is why also her finger-sucking habit is the worst. Because when a baby cries, when an infant cries, it wants its mother, it wants to nurse, and the only thing she could do was suck her fingers. And so I realized that this wasn't just 
a bad habit, but it reflected a deeper longing of comfort and intimacy that she maybe didn't get. And so as I started to think about that and as I started to think about today's sermon, we talk about what can we do to stop sinning? Everybody thinks they have an answer and some people want to beat you up about the topic. But what we really need to do is figure out in our own lives What is the deep longing in our lives that we have run to sin in order to fulfill? It's really that simple. What am I feeling like I am missing out on, therefore putting in its place sin? And yes, we are going to talk about that classic struggle of sin today, but we are going to look at it with that different perspective. So if you would go with me to the book of Romans, as I said, we are in Romans chapter six, and we will look at what Paul had to say about this very subject. So in Romans six, he opens by saying this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might, too, walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law. But under grace, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now. Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. 
For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare our hearts and our minds to hear from your word, God, we pray that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds and our ears and our spiritual eyes, God. Let the eyes of our heart be enlightened so that we can receive what you have to say to us, God. What we need is freedom. What we need is freedom from sin. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, Paul opens up this passage with one of the most important questions in the New Testament. Should we continue in sin so that grace may continue? But I don't think we ever really talk about that follow-up question that he asks because it is a doozy as well. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul emphatically says, of course not. We don't continue in sin so that we would receive grace. But what there is, is there is this struggle between, in Christianity, two groups of people. It is the group of people, those who believe that you can lose your salvation, and then it is those who believe once saved, always saved, meaning You can live whatever kind of way you want, but that doesn't negate your salvation. The reason many people believe that they can lose their salvation is because they cannot wrap their minds around the idea that Christians can receive such a grace and that grace not lead to more sinning. And I don't mean, yeah, we all sin, because obviously we do, but I'm talking about those deeply rooted, habitually sinful lives that we formerly lived apart from Christ. When people think about that, they cannot wrap their minds around a Savior who can actually change and reshape what we think and what we feel and who we are and what we desire. And so the only thing that they can rationalize is I think Christ is effective enough to save me, but not effective enough to keep me saved. Because their eyes are usually focused on themselves. And so the only place they can land is that we can gain and lose our salvation based on the amount that we sin, which we know is not the case. But then there is the alternative view, and it has two streams. There are those who believe in the eternal security that we have in Christ, but then there are the once saved, always saved people who believe that no matter what we do, no matter how we live, no matter how we live our lives, that we can never undo what we did when we were five years old and were baptized. And it is actually that latter view here that Paul is referring to. This view says that because I have received this great grace from God, 
There is nothing that I can do to distance myself from him, not even if I sin. And y'all, that is a dangerous way for us to think. And in both of these extremes is why most Christians struggle with sin. One, I don't think that I am secure. And that lack of security and assurance makes me seek pleasure while I can get it. But two, I am overly investing in the idea of my security, and I have often become more sinful thinking that there is nothing that I can do to undo my salvation. And that security becomes the God. And when I've tried to explain this to people, I have often felt like I have fallen short because it is this delicate balance. But I heard this story, and and it helped me, and I hope it helps you. There was a mom who was leaving her three kids home while she went to pick up some food for them. Before she left, she baked an amazing cake. And she told them after they ate this food that she was going to get, that they could have that cake, but not before. Because the food that she half of them was going to be really, really good. And she told them, do not touch the cake. The oldest child, unsure that his mom would actually bring back food he liked, went ahead and ate some of the cake. But he left room just in case his mom did bring him something he liked so that he didn't get overly satisfied with the cake. So he ate a little bit, but he left some room for more just in case He was wrong. The youngest son convinced that the food would be so good that nothing would ruin his appetite, ate as much as he could, convinced that he would still want the food even after he ate all the cake that he ate. The middle child, however, did want the cake. They wanted the food, but he chose not to focus on either one of those things. He focused rather on trusting that if his mother said that what she had was good, then he would put his faith in that and wait. Where people people often go wrong, whether you think there is no security in Christ or whether you overestimate that security, essentially is that you put your faith in yourself. I can put myself in all sorts of situations. I can do all sorts of things. And I am strong enough to handle all of those things. If a person looks at themselves and their life and says, there is no way that I can live without constantly struggling with sin, then you're right. Because your faith is in the wrong place. And those who believe that there is no way they can live sin-free believe that they are the ones responsible for their salvation and maintaining their salvation. And for those who think that they can do anything because of grace, they are overestimating their own goodness and their own standing with God. So how do we actually combat sin? Well, it's by answering Paul's question. How can we, who died to sin, still live in sin? And that is the key. 
Us combating sin has very little with how we live if we have not first died. We have, by our confession and profession, we have died to sin. And the profession of our faith is not only that we are alive to Christ, but also that we are dead to our sins. You cannot both be alive in Christ and alive in your sins. Now, how can a man live though he be dead? Because we have been baptized into the death of Christ. Now, at first glance, it may look as if Paul is referring to baptism with water, that we went down in symbolism like he went into the grave. But I don't think it's symbolic. What if he's actually being literal here? If you remember, Jesus' disciples asked the question. When you get into the kingdom, where will we be ranked? Where will we be placed? We just want to know so that we can get to the right seat when you get into your kingdom. And instead of answering that question, Jesus said, can you be baptized with the baptism that I have to be baptized with? Listen. Jesus here is not talking about water, and the reason we know that, because people get baptized every day and mean nothing. No change, no life-altering salvation, nothing. What he was talking about here is that if you can die like I'm going to die, then you can reign like I will reign. So the question is not, can I live like Christ The question must first be, but can I die a death like he died? Can I be baptized into the same death that he was baptized in? And if we have not first died to Christ, it does not matter how you live. This is akin to what the Bible says regarding two people when they get married. And it is a divine mystery as far as I'm concerned, but it says that the two become one. How can two living things, living, breathing flesh become one? Somebody got to die. And what happens is in order for the two separate people to become one flesh, then there is a death that each of them must die to themselves so that they can live as one. What Jesus is saying to us through Paul is that if we are adamant that we want to fight sin, that we want to live the life that Christ has called us to live, we must die a death to sin like he died. Which is why Paul emphatically says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But it is not I... It is Christ who lives within me. If we want to be made one with Christ in a resurrection like his, we must have also died a death like he died. 
Now, when we die this death, to be clear, this does not mean that we lose all components of who we are. We don't lose our passions, our identity, our drive, or our will, but it means that when you say, I have died to sin, all the things that used to lead in my life no longer lead. All the things that drove me, all the things that motivated me apart from Christ are secondary. Christ now leads. My passions are now for him. My desires are now for him. And the reality is, is that many of us in this room, even now, are struggling and we may be pinpointing all the different areas in our lives that we want to give up. But I'm telling you, unless there was a real death to sin. Now, sin, by the way, goes well beyond habits. Every one of us has bad habits. And if you try, you can will yourself to stop a bad habit, even if that habit is sinful. But being merely able to stop yourself from doing sinful things does not put you in right standing with God. You have to have the right motivation. Your motivation has to be that this thing actually separates me from God. And I don't want that. In the garden, it was made clear to us in the moment that Adam decided to do what he wanted to do. There was a fissure in the relationship between him and God. And what did him and Eve do? They hid themselves. And they covered themselves. As opposed to dying to their own desires, they fulfilled it. And in that death, like we saw last week, they opened the door that allows sin into this world. If we are combating sin in our own lives today, our affections must not be for those sins. Our affections must be for Christ. It is to the man who is Considering committing adultery unless his love for his spouse, his wife, surpasses that of the sin he wants to commit, he will fail every single time. He must prize her more than he prizes any other opportunity to sin. In our own lives. As we struggle to fight the fight of sin and will continue to struggle, what must we do? We must likewise prize Christ above all things. We must find hope and joy and fulfillment and contentment and satisfaction in him above all things. A satisfaction that you know nothing else in life will ever be able to bring you. There are not enough beach trips. There are not enough bottles of alcohol. There is not enough weed. There is not enough nicotine to make you feel the freedom that is offered to you in Christ. 
And this, by the way, is what the great threat of the enemy is. If he can convince us that we are free to ourselves and that we'll be more pleased, then he knows he will drive us to death. What does he say, the serpent say in the garden? You won't surely die. He takes this opportunity they have to feel pleasure and knowledge and desire to be like God. And he convinces them that even though it was wrong, it was right. But unless what we feel and know about Christ surpasses all sin in our lives, we will never be able to combat it. When we die to ourselves and are baptized into Christ, we are saying that we will no longer lead with our flesh and that our desires will not lead us to sin. But even more crucial to that is the fact that we are not the ones who are willing that to happen in our lives. That is Christ. Our old selves have been crucified. Therefore, we have died with Christ. And I actually want you to think about what that actually means. What that actually looks like. Hitler and Ava Braun feeling the Russian and American troops coming and closing in on them ran into a bunker in order to hide out. They had devoted their entire lives to each other. And in that, knowing that they would be captured and tortured and killed anyway, they decided to leave on their own terms. But they decided that they would not do it without each other. And so it is that moment that both of them took cyanide pills and as much as they had lived together, they were willing to die together. Let's think about this. It is one thing for two people to agree to live with each other. But let's think about it. What does it take for two people to die together? There is a certain level of commitment that you just have to have with someone in order to die with them. So think about this. If we in this room are saying that we have died with Christ, living with someone can be undone. You can move out. You can change your mind. You can have a change of heart. You can get all your stuff and put it in storage. If you live with someone you can move out. You can leave. But you know what can't be undone? If you die with someone. Y'all, our profession is this. It's not just that we live with Christ, that we live in Christ. Our profession is that, no, we've actually died with him. It wasn't just him in the grave, but it was me. And there's something about death and dying with someone is irreversible. You can't go back on that. 
And so what kind of death did Jesus experience? A real physical death. And the death he died, he died to sin. Our deaths in union with Christ are to sin. So how do you stop from sinning in your own life? Would you die with Jesus? That's it. If it's you and Jesus in that tomb, are you willing to go? If it's him and you on that cross, are you willing to die with him? Have you died with him? In all your attempts to live for him, have you missed this crucial element? That in order to live with him, you must first have died with him. In the former version of yourself, if that former version is not in the grave, then you have no chance of defeating sin. Listen, you can stop bad habits. You can will yourself to not do some things, but actually defeating sin is not merely a body issue. It is a reconfiguration of your very heart. If that is the case, then that other question makes more sense. How could I continue in sin realizing what great grace I have received? And this is where we need to land. The gospel and salvation does not provide a prison for us. Rather, it provides the guardrails that we need to make sure that we don't go off the road. Sin looks like it gives us freedom, but what it actually does is it removes the guardrails until we drive ourselves off the road to destruction. And Paul says that the only thing that sin frees you from is righteousness. How can I stop sinning? I have to stop thinking that my sins make me free. I didn't say they ain't feel good. I didn't say that that profanity laden text didn't make you feel better. But they don't make you free. Secretly, they entrap you in more and more bondage every time you give in. Jesus was whipped. Jesus was beaten for our sins. And Paul says that when we were in our sin, we were obedient slaves to our masters of sin. So let's think about this. Jesus was whipped and beaten for our sins, and yet many of us will choose to be whipped and beaten by our sin into submission. And it is clear to us, the payment for our sin ultimately is death. But the free gift of grace from Christ to us is eternal life. What we need to do 
as we battle and fight this fight against sin is reset our gaze. We must stop putting the onus on ourselves and looking to ourselves as the thing that holds our salvation together. But we must look to Christ. And it is in those famous words, I believe, of Charles Spurgeon, who said, when I look at myself. I don't see any possible way I could be saved. But he says, but when I look at Christ. I don't see any possible way I could be lost. Y'all, we must look to him, the author and the finisher of our faith. If we can prize and worship Christ, then our desire to prize him, to worship him, will shrink down our desire to sin. It's just that simple. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word. God, it is a truth. When I look at you, when I focus my gaze and my eyes on you, how could I be lost? God, I would only be lost as long as I look to myself. As long as I'm the end all be all as the hope for my salvation, I am lost. But when I look at you, pleading, dying, the death that you died, there is no reasonable way I could be lost. God, for those of us who are in this room who are Christians, this fight for righteousness, this fight against sin will be ongoing for the rest of our lives. But in you, we have victory. God, while we do struggle with the presence of sin, you have indeed saved us from the penalty of our sins. And God, we long and wait earnestly for the day on the new earth when we will be redeemed. And not only saved from the penalty of our sins, but from the presence of our sins. God, I long for that day. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who does not know you, who is in the passenger seat as their sin drives their life, God, I hope that they realize that that car is headed off the road. That there are no guardrails when it comes to sin. And Satan's primary objective for us all is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But you promise, God, for those of us who are secure in you, there is nothing that Satan can do to snatch us out of your hand. And knowing that, God, we don't find the freedom to sin as we want, but we find the comfort in that security. Knowing that you who began a good work in us, who know you, you alone, God, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And we are being held together by you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.